how much of our thinking is swayed by others? If we disagree with what most other people appear to think, do we speak up or stay quiet and follow the herd for an easy life? My guest today is new AMI columnist, Jeff DeCagna, AKA the Association Contrarian, who has made it his mission in life to help associations by sparking productive friction and stimulating new ways of thinking. Jeff, welcome to Deep Dive. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to uh, be joining you for the first time. Um, I think it'd be useful just to kick off if you could just give a brief overview of your career to date, uh, what it is you do, what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, good questions. Um, so yeah, so I'm I'm Jeff DeCanya, and I uh, my title is Executive Advisor for Foresight First. I'm uh, based in the Washington D.C. area, specifically Reston. Virginia, for anyone who might uh, know where that is, which is about you know, 20, 25 miles or so outside of DC. And I've been in the association community for, in my, now in my 30th year, spent the first 10 years of my career working on staff in various associations, um, began consulting in 2002. And so now in my 20th year of the consulting process, and, and more recently, and now in the fifth year of Foresight First, so was under a different banner in um, from 20, 2002 to, to 2017. Principled Innovation was the name of the company. And then in 2017, I decided to celebrate uh, the 15-year um, anniversary of Principled Innovation by rebranding and refocusing <laughs> uh, my practice to Foresight First. And I'm a solo practitioner and, and have worked with many associations in the United States, Canada, other parts of the world um, uh, on issues of, of strategy of, and of foresight of building board capacity, um, looking at the future, learning what the future um, and, and sort of related business model innovation related concepts like that. And, um, and it's, been, it's been a great you know, opportunity to serve the community in a variety of ways and been very involved with um, ASA over the years and in a variety of capacities. So uh, that's the American yeah. Society of Association Executives. Correct. Yeah. Yes, the American Society of Association Executives Center for Association Leadership, and um, I've served on the board and have spoken for them over many years and served on a wide variety of groups and and done a number of of different things. Written a lot for them uh, as well over the years. Okay, so you have a lot of experience uh, working with associations, but as readers of your first column for AMI will have noticed you also call yourself the association contrarian. Now, that word often has a pejorative tinge, doesn't it? People say things like, oh, he's just being a contrarian. He's just doing it for effect or this is a performance. Um, so I'm interested, what does that word contrarian uh, mean to you? I've thought about this a lot over the years. And you know, unfortunately, at the root of the word contrarian is the sort of idea of being contrary. And, and I don't think that that's necessarily the way to think about it, because I think that is what encourages people to think of it as a performance. For me, it's never a performance. Uh, it's something that I do because I feel strongly that we need to look at things in different ways. And so for me, it's always about, you know, my, I believe, and I wrote about this in the column, the number one role that I try to play is to create productive friction in an organization, uh, especially in organizations like associations that very much need to look at things in different ways. Um, and so for me, it's, it's not for effect. It's not a performance. And, and I, 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 I would hope that we don't see it through a pejorative 
lens. Um, I would hope that we would see it as simply an alternative view. I think part of the reason why also it's pejorative is because when one is a contrarian, um, one is choosing not to conform. Mm -hmm. And more than anything else, what our society likes is when people conform to accepted categories uh, and stay within accepted lanes, um, despite all, especially in the U.S., despite all of our emphasis on the rugged individual, there's still a desire for conformity, still mm. a desire to categorize people. And, and, and I think I find that to be problematic. Um, I mean, that may come up in our conversation, yeah. but I think that the contrarian view um, is not necessarily something that should be viewed negatively. Instead, it should be viewed as an, as an alternative way of looking at things, uh, which, uh, again, I think we very much need, especially right now. It's interesting that you frame contrarianism like that, because I think in many ways, the media, it suits the media to have people in these polar opposites, in, in these channels, thinking one thing or thinking the other. And a contrarian could be not fit into, I don't know, the right or the left of politics. It's just someone who goes against the grain of that ways of thinking that the media would like us all to fall into. That's something I, I think of when I think of a contrarian. And, and who is to say that we shouldn't take contrarians at face value? At what point do we say that? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, because I, I think that, you know, I think you're right about how the media wants to view it, is the media often wants to set it up as a, a debate, mm -hmm. um, that there have to be different points of view that are, as you say, polar opposite, that have, there has to be conflict. I actually don't like to debate. Um, you know, for me, I don't find that there's a lot of value in the debate aspect of things. I, I think I prefer, I know I prefer the focus on listening and learning from mm -hmm. one another, but it, there's no, there's nothing incompatible with saying I have a contrarian view and, and, and then listening to other points of view and encouraging others to listen um, to what I'm sharing. So it's all about getting to an alternative framing. And look, I want to be clear and say that I don't know that everyone who adopts a contrarian mindset operates in this way. There are probably, mm. in fact, I know there are people who see themselves as being contrarian because they do want to raise their profile. They do want to... Clickbait. Exactly. Yeah, they do. They do want to offer you know, that perspective because they see that as a way to not to push a conversation constructively, but to manipulate the conversation or to, um, you know, shape it in a way that is beneficial to an agenda that they're trying to advance. My only agenda uh, in the work that I do is to try to help associations be more successful in a world in which um, some of the ways of doing business that have endured over time are, are simply no longer helpful to what they're trying to accomplish. So, so yeah, for me, it's, it's not, it's not about um, manipulation or trying to present an image. It's about trying to advance the process of learning and try to shape the conversation in ways more suitable to the world in which we live. Yeah. And is that why in your column, you write that being a contrarian is a way of seeing yourself that you did not easily embrace and you do not take lightly. Can you share a bit more about that? Is that because of this idea that's been attached to it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I think that I think that, you know, for years, I would offer alternative perspectives. And um, I would I would be um, told by people that I was a provocateur, or I was a bomb thrower, or I was, you know, this or that. And, and I didn't see those things that they were saying as compliments. Mm -hmm. um, and although they may have been intended that way, but I just didn't take them that way. And so it wasn't easy to embrace this idea. And also I understand that the association community as a, you know, kind of conservative space um, 
and I mean that not necessarily in the political space, although that can also be true, but but just generally being more risk averse would not necessarily always embrace the idea of a contrarian perspective. So it wasn't something that I necessarily wanted to um, to adopt fully, but eventually I did because I saw the value of 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 having that way of looking at things for myself and the, that way of looking at things for my for my work. But I, you know, because of your previous question about the pejorative connotations here, I don't take it lightly because I don't want people to sort of see this as something that I do, as I've said, just for effect. It's purposeful provocation, right? Mm-hmm. It's a purposeful endeavor for me. And so I try to um, I try to always follow that that way of looking at things and not just uh, come forward with, okay, well, I'm going to disagree with this because mm-hmm. someone else has said something else. There are, you know, there's a there's a reason for it. There's a rationale for it, and there's a continuous examination of those of those issues to make sure that what I'm talking about continues to make sense. It's never just I've got a position and I hold on to it no matter what, and I'm I can't be wrong. I'm wrong frequently, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to offer different framings to try to change the shape of the conversation. And the thing I can say is I feel like the the work that I've tried to do in that regard does advance the conversation rather than uh, becoming an impediment to progress. Yeah. So this is not really about what Jeff thinks. This is about sparking a productive way of moving agendas forward and getting associations, for want of a better phrase, thinking outside the box a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's some of both. I mean, I've, I've devoted, you know, 30 years to trying to understand these issues. And so I definitely have views. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so I either and I do think I, I have um, an understanding of, of issues. I've always tried to be kind of more outside in in my approach rather than inside out. So I've always tried to look beyond the boundaries of the association community and try to learn about things beyond what we're talking about and then bring that back to our community and try to adapt it. Things. So I do have views and there's expertise behind it, but it is in service of the larger idea, which is wanting to help associations uh, adapt to the world in which they operate and and to be future oriented and prepared for everything that is coming at them, especially, you know, now, I mean, I, I was talking about the turbulent 20s in the summer of 2019 before we were talking about a pandemic and we've been hit with this um, in the course of the last year, 18 months or so in a way that none of us, no organizations really were prepared for and now we've been given a very clear indicator that what we've been doing for many decades before now is not sustainable. And that message needs to be heard. And so I try to present it in a way that captures people's attention with, with thinking behind it, with ideas behind it, with practices behind it, uh, in an effort to help them adapt what they've been doing and, and perhaps redesign or reinvent their work as well. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's focus in on a some of those um, ideas and views that you've developed over, over the years. You, you write in the uh, column that, as a contrarian, I am frequently on my own in interrogating the myriad orthodoxies that shape the practice of association management. What are some of those myriad orthodoxies you need to uh, you see the need to question? So, you know, <laughs> the use of the word myriad implies that there are many, and there are many, and, and we could go into them in, in quite quite a bit of detail if we wanted to. But I'll try to limit myself to to a few. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that uh, certainly there are there are orthodoxies that exist around 
um, our approach to strategy, the focus on leadership, the um, emphasis on generational framings and so on. There's a whole number of different things in those areas we could get into, but I think for associations where it starts, and this is actually gonna be the subject of my next column coming up in, in June, is around membership, right? That, that the most sacrosanct orthodoxies in association management revolve around our thinking about our uh, connection to our commitment to the, the issue of, of membership in our, in our organizations. And it starts with the fundamental orthodox belief that associations must have members. And, you know, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be members, but what I'm saying is that what associations are about is it's, it's in the name. It's about helping people associate with one another. Membership is a way that we have been able to monetize those uh, connections um, over a period of time. But I think what we are seeing more and more is that, you know, not everyone that we could be in a relationship with in our organizations wants that. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't have to call it that just because that's what we've always called it. Um, we should be able to say, we're going to have relationships with stakeholders um, that are not defined in any way, shape, or form, even using the language around membership, that those can be different kinds of relationships based on value that has nothing to do with membership. We could be talking to and connecting with people who, where we see mutual benefit is possible, but it doesn't have to have anything to do with membership. And the reason why this is important is because this foundational orthodoxy around associations must have members. Upon it, we have built many, many other orthodox beliefs about how our organizations are supposed to operate, who serves on the board, um, how we frame up our, our business models, how we think about strategy, uh, you know, whose money is it? Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that go into um, that go into this that are all predicated on this on this foundational idea. And we've built up an infrastructure almost of orthodoxy around it. So there's a lot that we have to unpack there. I'm going to try to do uh, begin that in our in our in my June column, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it in more detail at that time. But that's you know that's kind of those are some of the areas where I think we need to to do a lot of work and examine you know how we're going to adapt uh, to to the world in which we're operating now. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that you talk about not speaking about the language of membership. I've heard it slightly from the other way around where people say, let's open up the language of membership. So uh, if someone is just buying the journal or if someone just attends a conference or if someone just wants a certification program, we somehow find a way of embracing them within the language of membership. But you're saying maybe we don't need to think in terms of membership at all, slightly different. Well, yeah, I mean, because again, the way, you know, and this comes, a lot of this has really been refined over the years that I've been talking with associations about their business models. When I'm helping an association visualize this business model, and we're talking about stakeholder segments, that's the phrase that I use to describe, you know, who are the stakeholders we're serving. I talk a lot more about stakeholders than I talk about members. Uh, you would, we would never, in that, in that process of visualizing a business model, use member as a stakeholder segment. And the reason for that is because membership is a relationship that we offer, but it doesn't have to be the only relationship. So when we use the language of membership, we are defining how we see the stakeholder rather than saying, you know what, the stakeholder exists independent of us. Hmm. And we need to see them for who they are, right? And help them 
connect with us in a way that resonates with them rather than trying to categorize it in a way that resonates for us. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about conformity, right? It's conforming to our expectations of what the relationship is. We simply have an easier time in our minds seeing everyone who's connected to us in some way as a member. But what if that doesn't work for them? What if that's not what they want? More and more, we have to see this not through the lens of how do we get them to fit to what we're trying to do? And instead, how do we make, how do we design the association in a way that fits with what they're trying to accomplish? Again, outside in rather than inside out. I think we're, we get caught up a lot in our language that centers around membership. So therefore mm -hmm. everything, you know, it's kind of like hammer and nail thing. We have this membership hammer. So everything looks like a nail. And, and I would say, you know what, that's just not the way it works uh, in today's environment. People are looking for something different. And frankly, they all have, they have alternatives that don't require them to sort of fit that mold, right? They can be, they can sort of follow what they want to be mm. without, without it having to conform to the organization's expectation. And there's a whole host of reasons why this, this limiting belief, these limiting beliefs around membership endure. Part of it is around the technologies that are used that reinforce the idea of membership that, you know, we have boards that are pro composed primarily of members having a conversation with a board about, you know, we need to be expansive beyond members is very hard because they, you know, somewhere in their minds are saying, I'm only at this table because I was a member. Because I'm a member, right? Or I'm only in this Zoom meeting because I'm a because mm -hmm. I'm a member. And and so how do I reconcile that with what's being said? And and again, that's where it becomes a contrarian perspective is that we don't have to be just limiting ourselves. Right now, the biggest issue that or a big issue, not maybe not the biggest, but a big issue that I see is that we've erected barriers to relationship building with potential stakeholders where there could be mutual benefit. And that bar those barriers center around eligibility, like who can be a member and who will pay dues rather than lowering those barriers and saying, you know what, we, we need to be expansive in our thought process around how we build relationships. And yes, there's room for people who want to be members and there's room for people who want to have different kinds of relationships based on our capacity to create value. And, and so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff to unpack there for yeah. us to think about it in a new way. Well, we fascinated to read more of that in your, in your next column. Now you also write in, the, in your original column that associations are primarily orientated towards the past, uh, profoundly conservative with a small C and protective of their traditions. Um, why do you think this is the case? Is this primarily a structural or philosophical problem, or is it a mixture of both, or or something else altogether? So, you know, I I, I can speak to this, you know, with more specificity with regard to the experience of associations in the U.S. more so than other parts of the world. I'm just thinking about the origins of associations in the U.S. going back to. Um, you know, especially the period after the U.S. Civil War, the late uh, 19th century and the early 20th century, but even predating that, I think one of the one of the orthodoxies that exists is that we have to design organizations like associations, which kind of straddle the line a little bit between public and private in the way that they are sort of oriented in their thinking, that they have to kind of mirror the idea. Of, uh, of functioning like a, a government, right? Like when you look at the way boards 
uh, for example, or the way governance works in a lot of associations, it has a strong feeling of it has to be like a government um, entity. And a lot of U.S. associations have their approach to governing modeled on uh, the U.S. government structure. Right. Um, the dynamics exist in there. And government is a profoundly conservative enterprise, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the get-go. Even, even if it has progressive uh, elected officials, the very nature of government is, is conservative. It grind, the gears grind slowly. So the more that associations sort of identify with that governmental dynamic, um, the more conservative they're going to be. I also think that um, the very nature of the way some of the, the governing um, frameworks have been designed in associations and just the general history of, of governing going back to the Middle Ages is just a more conservative thing. I think part of it is, too, I was having this conversation recently uh, with a colleague where, you know, the, the way we think about uh, governing in, a, in associations is, is has been defined by attorneys and accountants and auditors mm-hmm. um, and probably some other professions that don't begin with the letter A. Um, but you know, nevertheless, by people who are sort of working in the financial and legal space. And look, I want to be you know absolutely clear. A, a lot of those people are people that I know and respect and they're friends mm-hmm. of mine. So it's not a criticism of, of them and their professions. It's that the thought process of legal risk, the thought process of financial risk, and protecting ourselves from that dominates mm-hmm. what goes on in board thinking. It may not dominate every board conversation, but it's always there. There's pages um, and pages of bylaws. Pages and pages of governing documents and the review of, of, of federal, you know, of government filings for taxes and, and so on and so on and so on, and the need to review budgets and the whole notion of fiduciary responsibility and, and oversight and policymaking. These are the traditional activities of, of governing, and they define in many ways the experience of serving on a board for, for many boards and, and certainly you know in the US. And as a result, it's a that's a very conservative way of looking at um, what you do. It is a structural, you know, sort of uh, execution of a, a larger idea. We're, we're here to proceed with care to move so slowly. Mm-hmm. And, and the, of course, the problem is that organizations designed that way, especially organizations that are, you know, cent- a century or more old that were designed with that intention uh, will, will struggle in a, an environment that is so, so much faster. And where the acceleration of um, societal transformation uh, requires far more uh, significant adaptation on an ongoing basis. Um, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different aspects of this that go into it. But um, that conservatism and that kind of risk aversion um, is is definitely detrimental. Now I'm not saying that people should be reckless, but I'm saying that's obviously not it. But I think our we have to have a better appreciation of the full spectrum of what risk looks like. And increasingly, the, the biggest risks are not the ones that we pursue. But they're the ones we fail to identify and fail to recognize that, uh, that they're there. And therefore, we do not act. And we wait until it's um, perhaps too late. Mm. The volunteer structure of boards is, is an issue as well here, isn't it? I mean, the people don't sure. necessarily have a huge amount of time to dedicate to the board that they're on. Or they may not meet more than, I don't know, every quarter, sometimes even less. Mm-hmm. Um, and the term of presidencies, where that is two years, three years, who wants a, 
who wants to mess up on their watch? Yes, I mean, and, that, and that's a great nexus point that you're bringing up between the contrarian view and, and, and the way we have to look at it, right? Because we have, and, and I agree that, you know, the voluntary nature of, um, of the governing approach in associations, I mean, imagine for a moment, I don't want to, I don't want to be clear, I don't want to hold up public companies as a model because public companies have their own problems. But, you know, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm just making a quick comparison which is, you know, imagine for a moment a, uh, a company like Amazon or Google, you know, that are so prominent in our society right now, having a board in which the board's composition changed over every three years through some kind of, you know, public election. Now, there might be some people who think that that's a good idea, and we certainly need to have a better handle on how boards are composed in the corporate sector, and there's a lot of work being done in that area right now. But my point is that those enterprises could not function um, if they if they had to have the same kind of you know voluntary driven governing approach with with you know electoral processes, uh, even though there are technically electoral processes in there, but not not really in public companies most of the time. Um, you know, so so the, the, our approach just doesn't really is not well suited. Um, but you know, for me, the contrarian aspect of this is that it's not even really primarily an issue of time, it's an issue of attention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because there, there are time factors, not discounting that, but really it's about knowing that there are time factors, knowing that people who serve on association boards, generally speaking, have day jobs. Those day jobs can be very demanding. The issue really is, what is it we are asking them to do with the limited attention they can devote to this? We know we're only gonna capture a fraction of their total attention because most of their attention is going to go to their jobs, to their lives, their families, other activities. And then we're going to get a small component of that attention for the association. How do we use it well? Um, How do we use it most effectively? And I don't think that's something we have really thought through. Here's what I would say is that devoting most of that attention to things like reviewing spreadsheets or government filings or other documents like that is not the best use of that attention. We need that attention focused in other ways to move the organization forward. Those things are important. Uh, I'm not just not saying they're not, but they're not the most important things in a world in which we really need boards focused on where are we going and how are we going to look at this through a different lens? How will we learn with the future? Um, How will we guide our stakeholders through this very turbulent future um, through the decisions we make today and going forward. So we need to refocus the attention of those decision makers because they're not going to stop being voluntary. So we need to better use the attention and their talents uh, for more worthy activities. Yeah, or completely reframe their um, their duties and their obligations. Uh, are you noticing a kind of tension uh, more between the executive, the CEO, the, maybe the younger dynamic CEO wanting to get things moving? And, and volunteer boards? Is that something that's increased over the years? You know, I think that probably, there's probably um, some of that that's going on. And I, I, th- I think I've certainly seen it with some of the um, organizations I've worked with. But I, I think, you know, one of the things that is of greatest concern to me is I think that a lot of associations have relied upon the acumen and savvy and energy of the chief staff executive to keep things moving forward without the boards really being a partner in all of that. And, and once again, my, my intention here is not to criticize, it's to point out that there needs to be, we talk a lot in associations 
about the board staff partnership. Um, my fear is that a lot of that is lip service, you know, in our in our community, that it's not really a partnership, that it's really more like you're saying, uh, that a the, the uh, you know high energy kind of CEO or someone who's really oriented toward getting things done, wanting to see progress, is driving things and kind of pulling their board along to make it happen. Um, and if there's trust there, you know that may be a workable strategy for the short term. But over the long term, it needs to be more sustainable. The problem with it, the problem with doing it that way, there's really a couple of problems. The the, the immediate obvious problem is that that person will burn out. Um, and people are exhausted, you know, for, as a result of the pandemic. Um, even ironically, even though a lot of those people traveled a lot, which is an exhausting process, they're not doing that now. Having to manage through this is, has been an exhausting proposition for for them. It's been exhausting for boards um, as well. So there's a lot of sort of lower energy people, um, you know, that are that are having to work through this. Their energy's been sapped by what they've had to deal with over the last 12 plus months during the pandemic. So that burnout concern is real, but the deeper problem is that if we, we rely upon um, high, highly capable people to, through force of personality, to move things forward, despite what the board might be doing and despite their resistance to it, is that we're not actually building systems that are sustainable, right? One of the main things that we have observed throughout the pandemic is how fragile our mm-hmm. systems are, right? Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things we need to do, one of the key learnings that we really need to adopt and, and internalize coming through this pandemic as we move into new phases, next phases over the course of this year, is what are we going to do to build more resilient, really anti-fragile systems in our organizations that can withstand the departure of a highly effective CEO or the departure of forward-thinking, you know, board um, president or board chair or, or directors on the board who see it differently? And can we also build systems that ensure we're bringing in people in all those roles who will maintain the momentum going forward? These are system problems mm-hmm. that we need to address. And sometimes we don't necessarily look at the system issue. We just try to fix the immediate problem in front of us and put a bandaid on it, but it doesn't provide any kind of long-term solution. So you've mentioned the uh, pandemic there a, f- a few times. Has the shock of COVID-19 uh, shaken associations out of their complacency? Has it done anything to change this conservative tendency or, or is it too early to say? Well, I think it has. I think there, I think there has been, shock is the right word. I think there, has, there was a shock to the system. Um, I think out of necessity, a lot of associations had to adapt. Obviously, this is association meetings international, so you well know how associations have had to adapt to um, the, the meetings aspect of this, the events aspect of this, um, having to go virtual and now really even a lot of them still going virtual or hybrid in their approach. What's the long-term future for, for all of this? in terms of meetings. And as someone who at one time in my career was a meetings person, I was a meeting planner at the very beginning of my career. Um, you know, I'm interested in where that goes as well. But I, I, you use another word in your question that I think is also important, which is complacency. Yes, there was a lot of pre-pandemic complacency. Um, the issues around meetings were there. They were just there in a different context, which is we were always going to have a reckoning with all the meetings that go on and the impact on climate. But there was gonna come a point in time where we're gonna to have to say, we can't continue to support all of these meetings and domestic and global travel 
that is largely discretionary, given what we know about the effect of, of CO2 on the environment. Mm -hmm. And so we're always going to have to address that issue. The pandemic has accelerated our need to address those questions. So the shock to the system has led to some short-term approaches that may ultimately evolve into long-term approaches. But my biggest fear right now is that because of people's, I mentioned earlier, people are exhausted and everyone wants to get back to normal, quote unquote, um, there's no normal to be had, no previous normal to be had. We can't go back to where we were on March 1 of last year. Um, and so my fear is that what we'll do is we'll, we'll take a hard turn back toward complacency um, mm -hmm. and we will not do the learning that I was describing earlier, the, the real lessons out of the pandemic and try to uh, make permanent systemic shifts in the way we do business in our organization. So, you know, the immediate impact, there's been, there have been things that have been of, of interest to me that have happened, but will they be sustainable? Will they endure? over time, that's a question I have real concerns about whether we will, you know, take that hard turn back toward complacency or whether we will build on what we've learned and continue to, to recognize that we have to do it differently going forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm always skeptical when people talk about everything changing after these shock events. Uh, people said the same thing after uh, whether it was 9-11 or the financial crash. And often when people are saying that, they, they are sort of projecting what they would like to see change. But I think, think there is, there is a, a risk that people seek comfort in what they know, for want of mm -hmm. a better phrase, and, and just very easily slip back into the, old, into the old routine. Is that what concerns you most about the uh, trajectory of associations coming out of this pandemic? Well, yes. I mean, our, our conversation, a lot of our conversation is focused on orthodoxy and a lot of my you know, future columns will, will focus on, on orthodoxy. And um, I was saying this yesterday to a board that, you know, explaining to them that, you know, if we never heard the phrase, think outside the box again, it would be too soon. But if, but if we, if we want to banish that phrase forever, the best way that we can do that is to understand what exactly is this box that everyone mm. is talking about. And that box on all of its sides is created by orthodoxy, right? As you say, we are most comfortable, most of us, within that box, the mm. box of orthodoxy that we ourselves have helped to create. It was created before us, but we have advanced it. We have perpetuated it through our decision-making, through our actions, through our choices. Um, so we're a part of the box that we are in. We have helped to build it. If we really want to stop having to say that, then we need to challenge the orthodoxy that puts us on a certain trajectory. Because this is the thing, the trajectory we were on as of January 1, 2020, when the turbulent 20s began 477 days ago. Um, I just happen to know that because I'm doing a <laughs> webinar later and I have it in my head. Right. <laughs> um, and so 477 days ago, we were on a trajectory toward the future that is no longer available to us. So now we have to figure out what is the next trajectory. And that next trajectory could be one defined by the pre-existing pre-pandemic orthodoxy, mm -hmm. or it could be one that is redefined by our new thinking and our new learning derived from what we have observed and what we have tried, what the work we have done over the course of these last 12, 13 months 
uh, and more around the pandemic. And so, yes, I mean, I, I'm, I'm concerned that the orthodoxy is so thick and, and it does provide a measure, even if it doesn't provide always a measure of comfort, it provides a measure, a greater measure of certainty Mm. Uh, to people. They know what they know. They're familiar with it. And then, and right now familiar sounds very appealing mm. um, that the trajectory will be defined by what we have known rather than what we have learned. And I, I think, you know, the, the last thing I would say about it is that um, people, we fear uncertainty. Uh, I understand why we fear uncertainty. I talk about uncertainty all the time. This has been a period of radical uncertainty for all of us, but I think we have to redefine our relationship with uncertainty, it is not necessarily always going to be something that is bad for us to have that uncertainty because within that uncertainty, there's risk, but there's opportunity. Mm-hmm. And the more that we are capable of learning, the more we're capable of applying what we've learned from the pandemic, and the more we're capable of seeing things in a new way in which all of us, at least a little bit, can take a contrarian perspective on things. The, the better, the light, more, the more likely it will be that we will find a trajectory that is beneficial for us going forward, rather than one that essentially represents a return to where we were before. Mm. It's interesting. I was talking to a group of associations yesterday um, for, for an advisory panel for AMI, and there's a real strong sense that in some ways, uh, COVID nineteen had been liberating. Okay, so they'd they'd had all these. Uh, projects that were going nowhere that they were cleaving to because they felt they had to and COVID-19 was actually a perfect excuse just to say right let's just ditch this you know this isn't working so I think you're right it can present enormous opportunities as well I think the danger is that people see pre-COVID-19 as a kind of as a kind of platform from which to deviate rather than thinking and thinking completely new and completely fresh they sort of uh they take pre-COVID-19 almost as a kind of um What's the right word? They, they see it as a starting point from which to deviate, if you see what I mean. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, I mean, even, even in the short term, like I, I do think we have this very natural human tendency to romanticize the past, mm. um, that everything was so much better in choose the decade of your choice. Um, the problem is that it wasn't that. Um, I mean, a big part of the, there are many reasons why we can't go back to the so-called normal everyone talks about, right? That normal, first of all, we are no, we are not normal anymore. We have all been through this. We have all endured this. We can't ignore the fact that more than 3 million people around the world have died as a result of COVID, that in the U.S. it's probably close to 600,000. We can't ignore that. These are catastrophic numbers, right? Mm-hmm. This changes us, right? It has to, it has to change. So we, we are not normal, right? But that normal that we we're talking about was also a normal predicated on a lot of decision-making that excluded millions, billions of people worldwide from opportunity um, and, and created a world in which the, the haves are soaring and the have-nots are struggling. Even though there's been lots of improvements across a lot of metrics around the world, it's not all bad news. A defining aspect of our time that existed before the pandemic and has been exacerbated by the pandemic is that there are lots of people around the world in, in global North nations who have been struggling and, and, and continue to struggle through all forms of inequality. That was the normal that existed before. And we can't go back to that. We can't rebuild from there. We have to rebuild and, and make a different and better future from where we are. What we know, one of the things I say all the time is, you know, we owe more to those who will follow us 
And the reason why I say that is because we know more. We know what's coming. We know what's ahead of us. We know the challenges before us. So I very much want to believe what you're saying, that the pandemic has been um, a liberating force for organizations. The question will be, will we be able to sustain that? Will it come a point in time where people will be like, enough of this. Let's just get back to business. Let's just get mm-hmm. back to what we're doing. Rather than saying, you know what, this is the business. This is what we have to do from this point forward. There is no return to that. And you know, only time will tell how long we'll be able to sustain whatever new energy has been unleashed for beneficial transformation uh, of our of our community, of the association community, of all the related industries um, that serve it. Um, you know, we'll see. But certainly, I think we can all take personal responsibility for trying to drive that in the right direction, uh, rather than simply allowing simply allowing it to unfold. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today, Jeff. Let's just finish this on a sort of mind game. Um, <laughs> it's been quite interesting, hasn't it, over the last 12 months, how quickly, and this often happens on social media, I guess, but you quickly get these new orthodoxies and new wisdoms emerging. In your opinion, what COVID-19 orthodoxies uh, would you like to put a question mark beside? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. I think that I think that one, and I don't know that this is necessarily a pure COVID-19 mm-hmm. orthodoxy, but there's a lot of focus. There's a lot of focus now on everything's got to be digital, right? Digital, 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 right? That the future of associations is digital and so on and so forth. I'm hearing that everywhere. And, and I certainly agree that technology must play a role. You know, we need to think about how we use technology, but I actually think that going forward, what the pandemic has taught us is that our, the, our future is, is human that it's our humanity and our empathy and our willingness to build meaningful relationships separate from any need to categorize them as membership or otherwise, as we discussed, that that the future of an association business model, the future of association um, relationship building, the future of what we do is about our how, how human we're able to be and how much we're able to prioritize where people are and, and technology will play a role, but increasingly we also have to understand we, we used to believe that technology was a neutral factor. It is not. And um, it is increasingly a malign factor in many ways. And especially when it comes to things like um, artificial intelligence and automation, there are real concerns there. So rather than predicating our entire future on the idea that it's all gotta be digital, um, or that it's even all about bringing people together face-to-face for meetings, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we make it more human? How do we make it more empathic? Um, how do we build from that place? How do we build, I like to talk a lot about the idea of social capital. How do we rebuild that social capital, that sort of sense of trust and reciprocity that bonds us together and, and enables us to do things together, which is so much at the heart of what the associations are supposed to be about. Um, to me, that's the number one thing or uh, among the, the, the top few things we need to be focusing on going forward. And I think a lot of the pandemic move towards technology um, has maybe clouded our, our perspective on really where it comes down to fundamentally, which is how do we make these organizations that have always been about human connection, the, the, the human experience of associating. How do we make sure that that endures um, and is enabled by technologies, but is not uh, overwhelmed by them? Well, I think that leaves our listeners with uh, much food for thought. Uh, I'm already looking forward to your next column in June. 
Thanks. So, Jeff, thanks very much for your time today. And we will do this again after your next column and um, enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks, James. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and I look forward to uh, our forthcoming conversations.